This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode, which is Part 6 in our series 500 Years, the series being a commemoration of the half-millennial anniversary of the Reformation, is The Way It Was, and it's a brief look at popular religion in the Middle and Late Middle Ages in Europe. We've spent most of our time in this series on the Reformers, many of whom were professional clergy before they made the break with Rome. A fair question to ask is, what was religion like for commoners, for the peasantry, the vast majority of the population of Europe? Since it was only the clergy and a handful of the nobility who could read, people didn't attend Bible studies. Their religion was something designed and promulgated by the church. It centered on such things as the veneration of saints, especially Mary, relics, pilgrimages, and the quest to capture the Holy Land. As the faith spread, the church made use of Europe's pagan heritage. The old shrines and festivals were co-opted to Christian use. While theologians understood the difference between the Trinity and saints, the distinction was lost on the peasantry. The old gods were subsumed under saint names and holidays commemorating their martyrdom. Pagan temples became churches. The 12th century saw a surge in the importance of the Virgin Mary as central to the religious devotion of the common people. Both God the Father and God the Son, as males, were cast as angry deities, worked up about sin and ready to swat down the wicked. Mary was a mother whose tender mercy stood between these angry guys and helpless humans. She interceded with her son because, well, what son can say no to mama? So Mary's role as an intercessor was advanced. When it was declared that she was so holy she descended bodily into heaven, her cult grew since she now transcended time and space. While the use of beads as a prayer device had been going on for some time among the monasteries, the rosary with its prayers to the Virgin was added as a practice for all Christians in the early 13th century. In the popular mind of the average peasant of the Middle Ages, it may have been Jesus' work on the cross that atoned for sin, but it was Mary's intercession that secured that salvation to the needy soul. And that, only after each person had done their utmost to compensate for their sin through confession and penance. That's where priests came in. People believed that unless they died in a state of sinlessness, they'd have to go to purgatory where they would be tormented for ages. That much-desired sinless state was attained by confessing your sins to a priest and then doing the penance that he specified, 50 Ave Marias and 20 Paternosters or whatever he said. But of course, no one could remember every sin they'd committed, even if they went to confession every day. So all those unconfessed sins added to one's time in purgatory. Then, some clever cleric came up with the idea that people could secure relief from these forgotten and unconfessed sins by drawing on the excess holiness of the saints. While most people had a holiness deficit, there were special people, Jesus, Mary, the apostles, the saints, some popes, etc., who'd done way more good in their lives than their own faults and foibles needed. 
All of this extra goodness and spiritual merit went into a kind of heavenly reservoir that was called the treasury of merit. Since Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and he'd pass them on to his successors, that meant that the Pope had the authority to transfer some of that surplus merit to the needy. He did this through his agents, through priests and special representatives who'd occasionally make the rounds selling certificates called indulgences. These either dispensed with the need to do penance or in the late Middle Ages were used as a way to buy a deceased loved one's way out of purgatory. One of the ways that people could do penance and score major points was by going on a pilgrimage. The goal of such journeys was to some shrine or cathedral housing a religious relic. The Cathedral of Cologne, for instance, had several relics, the most important of which was a reliquary, which is a gold-covered box, said to contain the bones of the three wise men, the three magi. The trade in relics exploded with people of every social level desiring some memento that they could own that would accrue to them divine favor. The more famous the saint that it belonged to, well, the more expensive. Clever entrepreneurs then came up with all kinds of supposed relics with varying prices to satisfy the religious itch of everyone. Merchants carried splinters of the true cross as protection from highwaymen. Knights carried saints' teeth or finger bones or hair in the hollow of their sword hilts. People could buy drops of Jesus' bloody sweat or the virgin's milk at local fairs. And of course, every church needed a relic for its altar. When cities realized that there was profit to be made from pilgrimages, they began stealing relics from other towns in the hope that it would increase traffic. Martin Luther's patron, Frederick of Saxony, had amassed a huge and valuable collection of relics. But when the Reformation took hold, one of the first things to go bye-bye was the trade in relics. The pilgrimages that Europeans made during the Middle Ages in pursuit of penance or out of a desire to rack up some divine favor became increasingly popular. The granddaddy of all pilgrimages, of course, was to the Holy Land, but that was both expensive and dangerous. And so pilgrimages were designed within Europe itself. The most popular Western destinations were Rome, Canterbury in England, and Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. The pilgrimage routes were carefully arranged, with hostels spaced out along the way. A pilgrimage was usually a light-hearted affair. Pilgrims were a kind of spiritual tourist who traveled in groups and stopped at frequent shrines along the way. Earlier, I mentioned that the peasantry was illiterate. Their entire understanding of the Christian faith came from what the local priests told them. Those priests, while usually literate themselves, well, they didn't read the Bible. They may have read it in their first year as a monk novitiate, but after that, the clergy mainly read and studied Peter Lombard's 12th century work that was known as the Sentences. Lombard had collected the marginal notes and glosses that scholars had left in their Bibles. These notes were a kind of commentary on the scriptures. Uh, to get an idea of what the sentences were, imagine that you collect the Bibles of a dozen of your favorite Bible teachers. You then carefully call their marginal notes in order from Genesis to Revelation. Now, remove all the Bibles, so that's all that's left is your collection of notes. That's what the church used as its authoritative text from the 12th through the 15th century. People weren't being taught God's word. They were being taught as God's word the commentary of religious scholars. 
So no wonder the theology of the late Middle Ages was messed up and desperately needed reform. And no wonder when Eastern scholars fleeing the Turks arrived as refugees, carrying ancient Greek manuscripts of the Bible, they were snapped up, European priests and scholars relearned Greek, and began poring over the original text of Scripture like starving men given fresh bread. It was the arrival of these Greek manuscripts that stimulated the scholarly community of Europe and birthed the Renaissance. From the Renaissance then comes the Reformation, and a bit later, the Enlightenment. Peace.